Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a, uh, a really familiar story, isn't it? Even if you don't really know the Bible much at all, even if you're not a Christian, I'm certain that basically everyone in our culture has heard the story about the quote-unquote three wise men. Uh, in fact, last night I was uh, walking my dog around the block and it was dark outside and uh, I I'd take this same walk with my dog literally every day at least once and he was stopping to smell something and I looked up and in one of the houses uh, in our neighborhood there was a huge nativity scene right there and the three wise men on their camels journeying towards Jerusalem is right there in front of me and I walked by it every day and just hadn't even noticed it and I thought huh that's what I'm preaching on tomorrow (laughs) you know how interesting and it was almost like a picture of the way we can feel and think about these Christmas stories. We saw this a little bit last week. They are uber ordinary and familiar to us because we've heard them so much in our culture. And one of the things that I'm hopeful for, and one of the things that I think God is trying to do with us through stories like this is impress upon us a response God wants us to respond to these stories. The Bible, as the Bible itself says elsewhere, is living and it's active. And one of the things that God, through the living and active Bible, asks for you to do this morning is respond, to respond in faith. That's what we've seen already, just in a couple of Sundays looking at Matthew. Last week, we saw through the annunciation of Jesus' birth and through Joseph's response who Jesus is and through Joseph how we are to respond. Joseph last week, if you were here, you will remember, hopefully, he, he trusted what the angel told him and he obeyed and believed in God even when it lost him. That was his response. And as we move this morning, 
into Matthew chapter 2 and encounter this really interesting story, um, we see more about who God is and we see more possible responses to God. That's one of the beautiful things about the narratives of the Bible is that they, in a picturesque way, invite us to place ourselves in the feet of these people, inhabit their stories, and respond or not respond in the way they did. So this story shows us, it shows us the reach of God's love. And it invites us to respond to God in particular ways. That's the question for you to think about this morning. How are you responding to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus? Let me show you two things from these verses. First, I want you to see the vast reach of God. And second, the various responses to God. Okay, first, the vast reach of God. Matthew is the only one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that tells us about this story, the story of the famous wise man. And there's a minor Christmas hymn that tells the story too. We three kings. Anybody's favorite Christmas hymn? Oh, sorry, Julie. We three kings of Orient are. Okay. That's a minor Christmas hymn. And there's some things to like about that hymn, but here's what's not to like. It gets it almost all entirely wrong. Um, so sorry if you love that hymn. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We've traveled afar. Uh, it's, it's really dead wrong on virtually every account. So sorry to burst your bubble. Let's look closely at the story here. The ESV, the translation we read out, out of, translates the, the word wise men, but that's actually not the best translation. The, these guys are what are known as magi. Magi. Uh, who are magi? Magi were a priestly caste, a group of priests who were not kings, but counselors to kings in the ancient Middle Eastern part of the world, in the Mesopotamian basin. If you know the Old Testament book of Daniel, then you'll remember Daniel and his three Jewish friends, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, rise to some prominence in the Babylonian court and function basically as magi to Xerxes, the Persian king. A magi was a priestly counselor to Middle Eastern kings. And what they specialized in were astrology and the interpretation of dreams and sometimes magical arts. Uh, and by the way, there were also not just three magi. So they weren't kings, nor were there three of them. They just brought three gifts. That's all we know. Matthew doesn't give us a specific number of magi. He only tells us they brought three gifts in verse 11. It's very likely that there was a very large caravan of wise men or magi tri traveling together. We know the group was large enough that the report of their arrival, as the story tells us, reached the ears of Herod himself in verse 3. And then the last thing, they weren't there the night Jesus was born in the manger, as a lot of nativity scenes suggest. Rather, they arrived between somewhere between two months to even two years later. In verse 11, we read that Jesus' family is in a house when the Magi arrive, and, and they had to follow this star that they had detected from Babylon, from Persia, Iran, Iraq in the modern day, all the way to Jerusalem. So that's a little bit about who these people are. Now let's try to figure out what is happening here, okay? 
These magi, they're foreign astrologers. They are practitioners of, to use a Harry Potter term, the dark arts, dark magic. What does the rest of the Bible say about people like this? What does the rest of the Bible think about astrology? I bet you can guess. It is universally condemned. This is seen everywhere in the Bible as a wicked practice. Let me just give you one example. In the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, we read this. Isaiah 47, God speaks through Isaiah, and God's kind of making fun of the astrologers and magicians that Israel is attracted to. Here's what he says, Isaiah 47. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Let them, the magicians, the magi, stand forth and save you. Those eyed the heavens who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. That's who the Bible says these people are. They are people who practice things that are universally frowned upon and condemned by every other part of the Bible. But it is the Magi who, through their practice of astrology, discern that a star has arisen that represents the coming of a new king. That's what verse 2 tells us. And what we have to take from this is that God, the one true God of Israel, has supernaturally guided these men to Jerusalem through the use of their own pagan astrological practices to seek out Jesus. God invites, of everyone in the world, the least likely suspects to this birthday party, so to speak, of Jesus. God sovereignly intervenes and even uses their false practice of astrology to draw them to his son. That is really crazy. And God has done this before. There's a really crazy story in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, where Israel has left Egypt And they're on their way to the promised land. But on their way to the promised land, they have to go through these other foreign countries. And these foreign countries are scared to death of Israel because they've heard about the miracles that God is doing for them. And at one point, they come through the country of Moab. And the king of Moab has heard rumors about the God of Israel and how he's provided for them. And he freaks out. He doesn't want Israel to come. And so he hires this wizard named Balaam. And he tells Balaam, you can read this. I'm not making this up. Numbers 22, 23, 24. I want you to go stand on a mountain and I want you to curse Israel so that they will not successfully make it through Moab. And Balaam's like, sounds good. But then God appears to Balaam, the wizard, and says, why are you going to curse my people? You're not going to curse them. They're blessed. And Balaam's like, whatever. And then Balaam gets up the mountain and three different times utters what he thinks are going to be curses. But God sovereignly intervenes and the things he says are blessings for Israel. And the king of Moab is like, what what am I paying you for? 
And he's like, hey, I can only do what God is allowing me to do. That's another example of the similar thing we see here. God uses people who are far, far away from him. And even their ungodly practices to reveal and draw people to himself. What is Matthew doing? Here's what he's doing. He's showing us the vast reach of God. Do you remember the genealogy? A couple of weeks ago, God included, we saw, those scandalous Gentile women in the family tree of Jesus to begin to teach us the principle of grace. The principle of grace. And that's what we see again here. The Magi show us the missionary hearts of a loving and gracious God. The Magi show us that God sent Jesus for lost people. God sent Jesus to rescue not just those who were close to him, but those who were very far away, magicians and astrologers from places that historically had only been enemies to his people. Isn't it ironic? But it's very intentional that the first people to worship Jesus in Matthew are not scribes. They're not even Jewish. They're Persian magicians who know next to nothing of Israel's God. In fact, the insiders in this story basically ignore God's word. Did you find it interesting that Herod calls these scribes and leaders and says, hey, where's the Christ to be born? I'm just curious. And they quote rightly Micah 5.2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they just kind of go on like nothing had happened. You would think they would at least have their curiosity aroused. But no, they're completely oblivious. They ignore God's word and the outsiders receive it. Do you really get, do you really get how loving the heart of God is? That's what he wants you to see. God wants you to see how loving his heart is, the broken, and how vast his reach is for those who are far from him. The saving work of Jesus is for everyone, especially for those who have distanced themselves from the one true God, especially those whom we Christian types think can't be salvaged. God grabs those who are otherwise unsalvageable. That's the scandal of this story. That's the scandal of Christmas. That's the scandal of God's grace. He comes for sinners, not saints. Does that make you uncomfortable? It might. It might make some of us uncomfortable, particularly those of us who have been around the church for a long time, who have been around the Bible for a long time, and who really genuinely have tried to be obedient to God for a long time. The idea that God loves the farthest away, the younger brother prodigals, sometimes is scandalously offensive to the older brothers, brothers who had stayed close to God the whole time because always creeping into our hearts is a sense of deservedness always creeping in, a desire and an instinct to stratify people, to separate people into two groups, those who are relatively deserving and those who are relatively undeserving. This text tells us again, along with the rest of the Bible, that 
God's vast reach is only for the undeserving, which, by the way, is everyone. It's for the undeserving. God is for the lowly. God came for the broken, the banished. That's who he sent Jesus to, witches and astrologers, whores and drunks, thieves and liars. The great 20th century Gothic novelist Flannery O'Connor has so many short stories that in such arresting ways, in such in-your-face ways, show us this principle that God's reach is for those who are far from him. And one of her short stories is called The Revelation. And in this story, uh, the main character, this was published in 1964, by the way, so in the South, Civil Rights Era South. And the main character in the story is a lady named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is a self-righteous woman. She's proud of her good disposition, of her good deeds, of her own sense of decency. And she has a very low regard for black people and for what she calls white trash. She says, I hate freaks and the mentally ill. And at night, O'Connor writes, she lies in bed and she wonders who she would be if she couldn't have been herself. And O'Connor writes, quote, if Jesus had said to her before he made her, there's only two places available for you. You can either be a black or white trash. Which one? She would have wiggled and squirmed and finally said, all right, make me a black then, but don't mean that a trashy one. (laughs) Then one day she goes to the doctor's office And Mrs. Turpin finds herself surrounded by the people that she despises. And and this is classic O'Connor. Out of nowhere, this young woman whose face is marked with acne scars gets up and strides across the room and smacks her across the face with a book. And she tries to strangle Mrs. Turpin, screaming at her, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And Mrs. Turpin, rightly understood, is is freaked out. She's shaken to the core. And she goes back to her house. And she steps into her backyard. And she's looking at the garden in her backyard. And she receives a vision. And from the ground, in her vision, a huge fiery bridge rises from earth to heaven. And along that bridge, Flannery O'Connor writes this, quote, A vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And finally, a whole tribe of people, just like herself, marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. The story ends with Mrs. Turpin into her house, hearing only the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. There can be a touch of Mrs. Turpin in every single one of us, you see. And we need it burned away as we see the vast reach 
of God's grace. Who do you think Jesus came for? He came for those who are far away. How do you respond to that? What do you think of that? To a God who who reaches out, to a God who loves people that are that unlovable from our perspective, to a God who comes down to us as Emmanuel. That's what I want to ask you and look at with you secondly, the various responses to God. And the story really, it gives us two major responses, which might be responses that are present in this room this morning. Um, Let's look at them. Herod. Herod is the obvious first person to look at, right? And we'll see more of the horror of Herod's response next week. But for now, look with me at verse 3. Matthew writes, When Herod the king heard this about this baby that has been born as a king of the Jews, he was troubled. That word, troubled, means a state of mental and spiritual agitation, fear, anger, and anguish. Herod only hears one word that the Magi say. King. Do you see how deliberate Matthew is here? The only time in the entire gospel of Matthew that Herod is called king is in verse 1 and in verse 3. After that, he's never referred to again as King Herod. In fact, when he hears that another king of the Jews, verse 2, has come, he's overwhelmed with thoughts that revolve around one thing. Herod knows that he cannot not be king. He cannot not be king. And this is what troubles his spirit. The other king must go. He's hell-bent on that goal. And so, as you heard the story, as the Magi, unwittingly, we suspect act as secret agents for him to find out where this new king has been born. And then, verse 8, he lies through his teeth. When you found him, bring me word so I can come worship him too. Right, Herod. And we know that's not his intent. We'll see next week, in fact, what he tries to do. So how can we define Herod's response to the news that Jesus the king has come? We can use multiple words. Rejection. Antipathy. Rebellion. And listen, my friends, listen to me. It is so important that in these Bible stories, we see ourselves not just in people like the Magi, but in people like Herod. Herod is not intended to be presented to you as like a Marvel Comics supervillain. He's not a Bible supervillain. Herod is all of us. Yes, he is an extreme example, but he is not an isolated one. Herod's response to the message that there is a king that has come who will rule is to deny the king. It is to destroy the king, if at all possible. The line of sin runs that deep in every single human heart. What is sin if not rejection of God the King? The Apostle Paul has his own summary of the human condition. He tells us in Romans 3, There is not one person who is righteous. No, not one. 
There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. What the Bible is telling us through this story and through Herod is that every single one of us have a basic inclination towards self-deification. Every single one of us have a basic inclination towards wanting to be God, towards wanting to be king, just like Herod. We might not have his power. We might not have his rage. We might not have his hardness of heart, but our disease is the same. All of us are bent inwards towards self, which by definition bends us away from the living God. And even Herod, even Herod, it's important for us to have his chance to come to Jesus. You can imagine, right, in the metaverse, an alternative reality in which Herod responds. He genuinely does join the Magi and go to Christ and bow before him in worship and give him great gifts in praise. But in the real world, that is not Herod's choice. And it is his choice. It's his choice to try to keep a vice grip on his rule. He says to God, you're going to have to pry my kingship out of my cold, lifeless fingers, which incidentally is exactly what God does. The dark side of the story is that the appearance of the light in the world stirs up the darkness. It awakens the forces of evil and some respond with rejection. Some Respond with anger. Do you see the little bit of Herod resident in your own heart? All of us have it to a degree, even if we've been followers of Jesus for years. Martin Luther's catechism said that our flesh in itself is corrupt and inclined to evil even after we accept and believe God's word. God, through Matthew's story, asks us, he invites you and he invites me to look at our inclination towards rejection of God and to repent. To say to God, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Please forgive me. Because your love has such a vast reach, don't look at my sin, God, but rather look to the blood of Jesus, your son, who has covered me with forgiveness. If you are here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is there a pattern in your life rooted in your sinful desire to respond to God by rejecting him that you have been hardened to? Is there a pattern in your life rooted by a sinful desire to reject God that you have been hardened to? Where are you trying to be king and not wanting Jesus to rule? Are you rejecting God by refusing to let go of a grudge and nursing that anger? Are you rejecting God by not releasing yourself into a community for friendship and accountability, but by only keeping to yourself? Are you rejecting God by ignoring his clear call in your life to a new work or a new task or a new venue because you're afraid of what it will cost you? God asks you to open up your hearts to him 
He asks us to lay down our arms and repent, to come to the king and give ourselves to him fully. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope the point is clear. You are not the king of your life. Jesus is the king, and he is calling you. He's lovingly asking you to come and bow to him. What would that look like for you? Letting go of the fear of losing control of your life? Finally admitting you've made a mess of things and you're not sure how to get out of it. Embracing the release of guilt and shame that God offers and definitely will give. King Jesus beckons you. Don't make the same mistake Herod did. Come seek Jesus and he will receive you. In fact, he would love to receive you. The first response is Herod. The second response, and we'll close with this, is, of course, the response of the Magi. Look in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's all one word, by the way, in Greek. That's a word that's hard to translate. They were super, super, super happy. They were tickled to death. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. How would we define that response? Joyful worship. Generous devotion. It really is a stunning thing. Jesus draws those who are farthest away, the vast reach of God's love, and they bow down and worship. And without doubt, Matthew The Jewish author of this gospel has in mind Old Testament prophecies that we read about, like in Isaiah 60, where Isaiah says, nations shall come into your light and kings to the birth of your rising. Psalm 72, may kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. We've seen already that God is the first giver in this story. He gives Jesus in his death and resurrection for our sins. But the Magi, they are the second givers. They give honor and they give service to Jesus. The meaning of life is to devote one's gifts to God's king. The meaning of life is to devote one's gifts to God's king. And so... Is your response one of joyful worship like these magi? Is it one of generous devotion? God made himself one of us in Jesus. He lived with us and for us. And he took our guilt, all of it, on himself in the cross. God in Christ is with us now. And always in our happiness and hurts, in our failures and victories, never leaving us, never forsaking us. His love is transforming our relationships and spirits. And even in the self-death that this life inevitably brings, he is always there. What generosity. What a God. What a gift we've been given. When you've been given a gift that great, does it fill you with generosity too? The Magi, they, they offer Jesus the best gifts they had because they understood who he was, you see. What a joy for us to give away our best too. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says in just a few chapters, for they shall see God. 
to give away our best in spontaneous gratitude to the God whose love is that great. Let me tell you a story, then we're done. Brennan Manning uh, tells the story of uh, his experience as a, a priest living for 10 days in Juarez, Mexico, <clears throat> in um, the city garbage dump with the poor of Juarez. He, he lived there with little children and old men and women who literally scavenged food from a mound of refuse more than 30 feet high. And he spent 10 days in Juarez and left Juarez and immediately went to another ministry assignment, which was a revival service in Algier, Louisiana. And at this service, the gospel was powerfully proclaimed and it had a stirring effect upon the people who were there, including Manning. And after the service in the parish hall, a man came up to Brennan Manning and handed him an envelope while muttering quietly under his breath, I've prayed about this. And Manning quickly put the envelope in his pocket and forgot about it until the end of the day when he was putting on his pajamas and he saw the envelope fall out of his pants pocket and out of the envelope fell $6,000 in cash. And what Manning decided to do with that $6,000 was give it to a man that he had met in Juarez with 10 children, three of whom had already died due to the grinding poverty of their daily life. And that man wrote Manning nine letters over the next two days, letters overflowing with gratitude, describing in detail how he was using the money to help his own family and other neighbors at the dump. Do you see the cascading effect of God's generous grace. Manning hears good news and the 40-year-old man hears good news and they spontaneously give. And then the man in Juarez hears good news and receives a great gift and, and spontaneously gives. That is the flow of God's gracious love. The message of grace received by sinful people leads to generosity and worship that is expansive. What love God has shown us. How will you respond to the vast reach of his love seen in Jesus? The scripture presses you to answer for yourself. Will it be like Herod, rejection of his kingship, where you say in your heart, I will continue to rule? Or will it be like those foreign magi, submission and worship leading to generous devotion. Don't let the Christmas stories pass you by because you're so used to them. Invite God to speak to you and respond to his grace. Let's do it today together. Let's pray.